Hello, it's Joe here taking the Leader Podcast baton forward from David for you today. Thank you so much for listening to our show, The Leader Coronavirus Daily, and a hugely warm welcome if you are just joining us for the first time. Now, we hope you are going to enjoy our interviews, news, and special features on board. And if so, we would really, really love it if you could subscribe and share this podcast with your friends or colleagues if you like it. Uh, Now, from the Evening Standard in London, this is The Leader Coronavirus Daily. Hi, I'm Jo Yule. Coronavirus is not backing down. This is a global pandemic. It doesn't care which country you're in. If we don't get it right in a village in Yemen, it's going to come back. Gwen Hines from Save the Children as the number of cases reaches record levels around the world. And... I'm sure there'll be a cake. Um, Perhaps they'll, they'll get outside together, although it's a pretty sort of drizzly day. Windsor Castle is obviously an enormous castle. So there's sort of plenty to do in the grounds. What's Prince Philip up to on his 99th birthday? We ask insider editor Lucy Pavia. Taken from the Evening Standard's editorial column, this is the leader, Coronavirus Daily. For the whole thing, pick up the newspaper or head to standard.co.uk slash comment. In a moment, the continuing rise of coronavirus. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We still don't know where COVID-19 came from. We still have no vaccine. The disease is still spreading. In the UK, we talk about its retreat. We're thinking about life after lockdown. But around the world, coronavirus is on the rise. Our editorial column says a united front will truly bring this pandemic to an end. There isn't a global plan to defeat a global virus. And that's the big weakness lurking behind the world's response. Until there's a vaccine or a treatment, individual governments have found themselves in the front line, especially after the World Health Organization struggled to justify its approach to China. Like a cruel searchlight beam, different nations have found themselves exposed at different times. At the start, it was China, then Iran, then Italy, and soon after, Britain which seemed global hotspots. Here, at last, there is hope. Infection and death rates are falling, although they are still high compared with much of the rest of Europe. That progress is encouraging, even if there are fears of an autumn second wave, which could see progress stalled. But until the world gets a grip, we can't say coronavirus is in retreat. Data suggests that the peak of the global pandemic is yet to come. While cases are dropping in Europe, they have soared in North and South America, in Brazil and Peru, for instance. 
Among organisations battling the infection globally is Save the Children. Their Director of Global Programmes, Gwen Hines, is with me now. Gwen, where are the hotspots right now that are experiencing the most severe cases of COVID-19? We're seeing a really mixed picture across the world. So you're seeing cases going up rapidly in places like Latin America, um, but you're not seeing a rapid increase in cases in Africa, but you've already got a lot of underlying issues there, like food security, that we're very worried about. And we know that when cases start to spike in Africa, that's going to be a real concern. Um, We're also very worried about the mounting number of cases in places like Bangladesh and the refugee Rohingya camps, and in Yemen as well. So it's a very different picture around the world, but... Uh, we're very worried about what might happen in many of these uh, very poor, very fragile situations. Why do you think it's kind of gone up so, you know, massively and spiked so hugely in Latin America, for example, more than places perhaps like Africa? So in Africa, a lot of governments locked down quickly at the end of March and um, did very, very strict lockdowns. So that probably has helped contain the number of cases. In Latin America, a lot of governments haven't locked down. You think of somewhere like Brazil, where there's been very little done in terms of control and social distancing. Um, And that's where you're seeing one of the highest spikes in cases at the moment. Now, of course, in Africa, the lockdown has had other consequences, and that's still a worry for people who aren't able to get food, aren't able to go to work, aren't getting other types of health care. But so far, we're not seeing the rapid increase in cases that we might have expected there. I mean, what are the biggest risks that, you know, maybe that we don't really know about? I mean, we're very focused here in England on our kind of, you know, our bubble of, you know, what's going on in the UK. It's a whole different context in many of the countries where we work. You know, if you think of somewhere like Yemen, we have 24 million people who live hand to mouth and depend on emergency assistance. If the funding they normally get to to help them do that through um, the British government's been strong in supporting them, other governments doing that. If that funding ends up being moved into other areas to support COVID response, what are those families meant to do? They have no other recourse. They have nothing else they can do. And they're literally living hand to mouth. They can't grow food. There isn't a government. There isn't work they can do. Um, And those people are incredibly vulnerable. And so we think of the the people who've died in the UK. And of course, it's awful. 800,000 children die of pneumonia every single year. Think about that. And, you know, if that work stops... That's going to be millions, millions more children who die of other causes. If the vaccines are stopping, if the women are not able to give birth safely, then the indirect impact of COVID could be into many, many millions of people who die um, or just have their lives destroyed. You know, if the girls don't go back to school, they'll be married off, they have early pregnancies. If she's married off, that is a life-changing decision that she'll never recover from. So we've seen today that there's a team from Oxford developing a vaccine that may be ready next year. But what happens between now and then? Yeah, vaccines are really exciting. I mean, I'm a massive believer in vaccines. And the the Gavi, the Global Initiative on Vaccine Alliances, is, is has saved millions of lives around the world. And it's great to see the recent replenishment of that. And with COVID as well, the vaccine is a long-term solution, of course, we will argue very, very strongly it must be available to everybody and it shouldn't be um, a bidding war about a war about who can pay most, who gets it first. You know, it has to be everywhere. But one of the things we do is we work right down at the community level. And we've always said that's an incredibly important way to do it because you've got local volunteers, women often in the villages who know the community, who do the really basic work. And we've done that very successfully on malaria treatment, on things like nutrition, on pneumonia, and now we're applying that to deal with COVID. So it's as basic as things like hand washing and soap. So we have a great partnership with Unilever to get soap and hand washing and you know better toilets and things right down to the community level. 
We also work with 500,000 community health workers around the world. We're trying to, we've got an appeal out at the moment, so we can add another 100,000. And we know on Ebola, we trained a million health workers across Congo um, to actually recognise the symptoms and to think what to do and to advise people what to do. You have to do it at the village level. You know, the whole idea of the debates in the UK about PPE equipment, it's incredibly important and we are helping to get that into many of the bigger health facilities. Oxygen is a big issue we're working on at the moment where, again, ventilators are you know, obviously really a big issue in the UK, but in most of Africa, oxygen doesn't exist in the clinics. So the long-term solution is to keep doing what we were always doing, to support those families, those communities, to work with their governments, with the district councils, with the teachers, with the nurses in those countries, to build up their own systems. And that is a way to make them less vulnerable to COVID, less vulnerable to conflict, less vulnerable to malaria, to all these other things as well. And that's really important. Keep the global discussion going. You see a massive fragmentation at the moment. This is a global pandemic. It doesn't care which country you're in. If we don't get it right in a village in Yemen, it's going to come back. Next. Interestingly, they do lead lives that are quite independent from each other. Perhaps that's the secret. Lucy Pavia on Prince Philip at 99. Apparently lockdown is the longest he's spent with the Queen for years. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Lockdown has proved make or break for many relationships since COVID-19 forced us all into our homes and to perhaps spend that little bit more time together than usual. So it was heartwarming to see the latest photograph of the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh, who, despite residing for the most part in a castle, are in exactly the same boat as the rest of us cocooning together at home. And that is how Prince Philip will be spending his 99th birthday with one royal expert claiming he's never spent so much time with the Queen. I'm 
I'm joined now by the Evening Standards Insider Editor, Lucy Pavia. Lucy, they seem to be really happy together after all these years, 72 uh, to be precise. What do you think their secret is? I mean, in in essence, really, what's quite interesting is, is that they lead fairly separate lives normally, but... The Queen obviously uh, was still working pre-lockdown, whereas Philip retired in 2017. I mean, understandably, he was 96. Um, Not many people retire at 96. But he actually day-to-day spends most of his time at a place called Wood Farm on the Sandringham Estate, um, which is where the Queen traditionally spends Christmas. But then obviously they'll get together for sort of big family royal events, um, like Trooping of the Colour, for example. But interestingly, they do lead lives that are quite independent from each other. Perhaps that's the secret. A little bit of uh, a little bit of space is basically what you're saying is, is probably the key to, to 72 years of happy marriage. I mean, we saw a photograph just last week of the Queen actually out on her pony. I was like, wow, she's 94. She's still riding yeah. and she's still pursuing her own passions. And I think they do have quite sort of, you know, separate interests from one another. Yes, I mean, you know, this place that that Philip um, spends most of his time at is, you know, it's very not by national standards. You know, it's a five bedroom house, but by royal standards, it's it's pretty small. It's pretty Spartan. He's never been a man about grandeur or sort of um, excessive creature comforts. Apparently, it's very sparsely decorated. He spends most of his day to day life apparently uh, painting. He loves painting. Um, And he signs his paintings with a Greek P, apparently, which is quite nice. And he also reads lots of history books. So I think they, yeah, they they both have their interests and passions, like any retired couple. But they do spend a relative amount of time apart from each other as well. But obviously, because it's quite extraordinary for a 94-year-old to be working full time as the queen is i mean would you be willing to speculate on what they might be getting up to on their on his 99th birthday together well i couldn't really say i mean uh, perhaps they'll i mean i'm sure there'll be a cake um perhaps they'll they'll get outside together although it's a pretty sort of drizzly day um it's quite funny um you know obviously it has been described as a cocoon but windsor castle is obviously an enormous castle so there's sort of plenty to do in the grounds so I think they'll I think they'll probably be just to be doing something relatively low-key they're, they're a pretty low-key couple I think in their in their private lives I mean obviously I would have thought he's going to have maybe perhaps a bigger birthday bash next year when he hits the big 100 um you know but it didn't seem to be that there was anything particularly planned for this year that obviously got cancelled because of the circumstances so you know any ideas how he might sort of celebrate the big one next year there'd definitely be a lovely portrait and a letter from his wife they met each other in 1934 when when the queen was just eight years old and i think there's there's a lot of humor there as well that brilliant brilliant quote that's attributed to him when um on the queen's coronation when he said where did you get that hat which i think sort of sums up the playful aspect of their relationship definitely and the cabbage nickname as well And that's the leader, Coronavirus Daily. You can keep up with all the latest COVID-19 developments with the Evening Standards live blog, which you'll find at standard.co.uk. And we also have morning briefings available at 7am through your smart speaker. Just ask for the news from the Evening Standard. This podcast will be back with you tomorrow at four o'clock. See you then. (laughs) 